Every time I open Fyodor Dostoevsky's last book, he tells me that before I go any further, I must submit to a beautiful death, the kind that brings life. The epigraph to the Brothers Karamazov frames what's to come in the words spoken and incarnated by Christ in John 12:24, that only when a seed sacrifices by burying itself to break and bloom will there ever be any fruit. It's both the horror and hope of these words that draw me back again and again. As a follower of Jesus, I know that they apply to my few decades on earth. And Dostoevsky reaches out, telling me to unclench my fists and submit. Listen, hope, and pray toward a better living of the truth. I wouldn't say I read him. It was he who read me, read my tangled thoughts and wordless angsts, and translated them into a wild symmetry, a reckless precision. Paradoxes I'd never seen anyone dare approach. He rushed like a bull at a matador. I learned that I was not the only one who groaned because to be too conscious is a disease and that two plus two equals five sounds truer most of the time than Euclidean geometry. But it wasn't until I read about those three brothers that my voice was poured into more than words, but into flesh and blood. Kara, two sounds signifying the darkness of sin and mazov, denoting smear and paint, the truth of the nations embodied in a name. Dmitri heals up who dove into depravity in the middle of a prayer, saw his sin as shameful but beautiful, ruled by and resigned to his passions. Ivan was love in the opposite's attract way. I carried his heart around in my pocket, it beat to the drum of newspaper clippings about the suffering of children that undeified God. Alyosha and I had long conversations. He understood me. I found a filter to life in his eyes, which always seemed to say, Sister, your mind has cannibalized your heart. My ideals have been shattered too, but Christ remains in love and certainty. Then Dostoevsky himself, that moon to the sun, told me if it was proven that Christ was apart from the truth, he would rather remain with Christ. I knew these words weren't empty, because he had lived and almost died through it all. Sentenced to death at age 28, he kissed the cross and awaited the firing squad. The moment stretched like a limber ghost. He lived infinite lives in those last five minutes. At the last moment, he heard, Stop! The Tsar had shown mercy. That stop was Dostoevsky's unexpected seed. Those syllables, Astanavitya, in throaty Russian, burrowed in his skin and were watered by the pages of a tattered New Testament while he sat in shackles and exile. From the fertile soil sprouted a pen that incarnated our schisms and Christ's grace. And now, in books like letters strewn about my room, he continues to proclaim the truth that I should prepare to die, because unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, the longed-for fruit will never be.
It's an understatement to say that Fyodor Dostoevsky's writing has greatly affected my life. He dares to go to the darkest places of the human heart, challenging me to examine my motives and question my supposed goodness. But he does this all through the lens of Christ's grace. There's no way I could do his ideas justice by putting them into my own words. So I decided to see if I could interview the man himself. And to my delight, he agreed. For you literature nerds out there, everything that Dostoevsky says in this interview is either a direct quote from his letters or a direct quote from his novels. Many of the quotes are spoken by characters in his novels, not the man himself, so I realize that there is the danger of conflating his character's views with his own. I tried to choose quotes from the novels that I felt accurately reflected his worldview and experiences, but I realize that this is impossible to do perfectly. I've made some slight modifications of quotes for the sake of flow, but I haven't made any changes that would affect the meaning. I'm so excited to fulfill this lifelong dream of meeting Dostoevsky. Thanks for coming along for the ride. Welcome to this very special episode of the Hope Unyielding podcast. I am so excited today because I get to interview my favorite author of all time, Fyodor Mikhailovich Dostoevsky. If you've talked with me for five minutes, you've probably heard me talk about how much I love the Brothers Karamazov, and I am ecstatic that my producer was able to get him on an interview for us, even though he's been dead for 139 years. I'm so excited for you all to hear the wisdom he has to impart to us. I believe he's going to inspire your faith. I believe he's going to inspire the way that you live. Without further ado, I would like to welcome to the Hope Unyielding podcast, Fyodor Mikhailovich Dostoevsky. Fyodor Mikhailovich, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you. It is an honor to be with you. To get started, I'd love to hear you talk about an event in your 20s that dramatically changed your life. You've written about this in so many of your books, and it's just a chilling description because it's something that most people don't have to go through, and that is living through a firing squad, basically. This event changed your life, led you into a season that was really dark, but it was a catalyst for both your writing and faith. In the mid-1840s, you were really making a splash in the literary world with your novels Poor Folk and The Double. Your future as a writer looked very bright. But then you got a little bit too involved with politics. In the Russia of that time, that was pretty serious, so things went awry. You got involved with a radical intellectual group called the Petrushevsky Circle. And in 1849, when the group was suspected of subversive activities, you and the other group members were arrested and sentenced to death by firing squad. Can you tell us a little about that experience? What was it like to be just minutes away from execution? Uh, I will never forget it. The date was 22nd of December, and we were all taken to Semenovsky Square, and there the death sentence was read to us. I was six in the row, and we were called up by groups of three. And so I was in the second group, and I had not more than one minute to live. 
finally, retreat was sounded. Those who were bound to the post were brought back, and it was read to us that His Imperial Majesty granted us our lives. Every time I've read that story, I just get chills. If you've heard the English phrase, my life flashed before my eyes. Would you say that phrase is at all accurate for what you experienced when you were just minutes away from the firing squad? Well, let me just say that those five minutes seem to be to me the most interminable period, an enormous wealth of time. I seem to be living in these minutes, so many lives that there was no need as yet to think of the last moment, the repugnance of what must ensue, and the uncertainty were dreadful. But, but worst of all, it was the idea, what should I do if I were not to die now? What if I were to return to life again? What an eternity of days and all mine. How I should um, count up every minute of it so as not to waste a single instant. This thought weighed so upon me and became such a terrible burden upon my brain that I could not bear it. And I wished they would shoot me quickly and have it done with. Oh, that description always gets me. You were sent to Siberia after all this happened, and you actually wrote an entire book about your experience in prison, although it was fictionalized. I bet my listeners are curious about the conditions of a Siberian prison in the 19th century. Could you tell us a little about your experience there? Uh, we all lived together in one barrack room. <sighs> Imagine an old crazy wooden building that should long ago have been broken up as useless. In the summer, it was unbearably hot. In the winter, unbearably cold. On the ground, uh, filth an inch thick. Every instant we were in danger of slipping and falling. And the small windows were so frozen over that even by day we could hardly read. The ice on the panes was three inches thick. We were packed in there like herrings in a barrel. The room was so cold in the winter that the ice never once thawed. And we slept upon bare boards. Each man was allowed one pillow only. Your prison life was really terrible, but somehow it really seemed to ignite your faith. In one of your letters from prison, you said something about Christ that was really thought-provoking, and I go back to this quote again and again. Um, would you mind sharing what you wrote? Of course. Uh, I said, I believe there is nothing lovelier, deeper, more sympathetic, more rational, more manly, and more perfect than the Savior. If anyone could prove to me that Christ is outside the truth, and if the truth really did exclude Christ, I should prefer to stay with Christ and not the truth. To any believers listening, that phrase is probably super provocative because it might seem to imply that there is a possibility that Jesus is outside of the truth. But 
I, I don't know when I read that and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that's what you meant. I think you were getting at the fact that the very character and loveliness of Christ is one of the greatest apologetics for the truth of Christianity. Whenever I remember this quote, I'm just pointed back to how lovely Jesus is. I do want to shift gears. I do want to respect your time. So maybe we can talk a little bit about miracles. You do write about this, and this is a hot topic in the church today. So my friends and I have discussed how rarely we in Western society experience miracles, but we hear stories of mind-blowing miracles in other cultures. In Western society, we tend to view ourselves as realists rather than idealists, but sometimes I've wondered that if we experience more miracles in our culture, more would believe. What do you think about that? Do you think if we experience more miracles in the West, more would believe? No, 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 not necessarily. It is not miracles that dispose realists to believe. I must be clear about that. The genuine realist, if he is an unbeliever, will always find strength and ability to disbelieve in the miraculous. And if he is confronted with a miracle as an irrefutable fact, he would rather disbelieve his own senses than admit the fact. Even if he admits it, He admits it uh, as a fact of nature that until then he has not recognized. Faith does not, in the realist, spring from the miracle, but the miracle from faith. If the realist once believes, then he is bound by his very realism to admit the miraculous also. Do you have any examples of this that might flesh out the idea? Of course, the Apostle Thomas. Uh, he said that he would not believe till he saw, but when he did see, he said, my Lord and my God. Was it a miracle forced him to believe? Most likely not. But he believed solely because he desired to believe. And possibly he fully believed in his secret heart, even when he said, I do not believe until I see. I've learned a lot from you about love. I'm definitely a hopeless romantic. I often idealize love. But in the nitty-gritty of everyday life, it's really hard. I find myself liking the idea of love actually more than loving others. (laughs) It's the same story as a doctor once told me. He said, I love humanity, but I wonder at myself. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. (laughs) That sounds about right. As you may have heard, we've had a huge pandemic in the States, and it's changed the way we've lived. Since the pandemic started, most of us have had to be in close quarters with our loved ones. It hasn't proven easy. You're not the only one. This same doctor, he also said to me, In my dreams, I have often made enthusiastic schemes for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually have faced crucifixion if it had been suddenly necessary. And yet, I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. In 24 hours, I began to hate the best of men, one because he's too long over his dinner, another because... He has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they become close to me. 
but it has always happened that the more I detest men individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity. You are speaking my language, Pyotr Mihailovich. I'm going to tell you a story about how one of your characters really brought something to light in my own life. In the middle of the mundane, in the middle of family strife, I've often romanticized becoming a missionary, imagining that if I were just in another situation, I would change, that I would be completely selfless, that I would love ceaselessly. In the Brothers Karamazov, you write about a woman named Madame Hachlakova, and she's a woman in her mid-30s. She's a widow, and she has a teenage daughter with a disability. Her teenage daughter is not very grateful to her for all the sacrifice she has made in her life. This woman, she romanticizes the idea of running off and becoming what's called a sister of mercy, and I think that's pretty close to what we would consider a missionary these days and just to care for people who are sick. She imagines herself completely transforming into a selfless, saintly person. But then she realizes that if she were in that situation, that as soon as she was not shown gratefulness, then her love for them would cool and essentially would be just the same situation that she was in with her daughter. I feel really similarly. It's hard to love in the mundane. It's easy to romanticize big deeds. It's hard to love when I don't feel loved in return. Uh, what would you say to that? I would say never be frightened of your own faint-heartedness in attaining love. And meanwhile, do not even be very frightened of your own bad acts. I am sorry that I cannot say anything more comforting. For active love is a harsh and fearful thing compared with the love of dreams. Hmm. How would you define this love and dreams versus active love? Well, love and dreams thirst for immediate action, quickly performed, and with everyone watching. Indeed, it will go as far as giving one's life, provided it does not take long but is soon over, as on the stage and everyone is looking on and praising. Whereas Active love is labor and perseverance, and for some people, perhaps a whole science. I do know quite a few people who love is essentially to them a science. They're very consistent in the way they care for others. They do love with their actions. What I'd like to say is that I'm not such a scientific person, and I wish I were more orderly, but I tend to be emotional and inconsistent. I constantly fail at loving my family and those closest to me. Well, listen, I predict that even in that very moment when you see with horror that despite all your efforts, you not only have not come nearer your goal, but seem to have gotten farther from it, at that very moment, you will suddenly reach your goal and will clearly behold over you the wonder-working power of the Lord who all the while has been loving you and all the while has been mysteriously guiding you. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. That's, that's really comforting. It reminds me of one of my favorite verses, actually, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When I try to love on my own, I feel miserably miserably. 
But when I succeed in loving people as Christ would, it's really not because of my own efforts, but it's because Christ is working through me. This is turning out to be a bit of a counseling session, which is what I appreciate so much about your work. While we're at it, I just wanted to bring up another weakness I find in myself that prevents me from fully loving others. I often value my freedom more than I value loving those closest to me. If an act of love cuts in on my free time or seems it will drain my emotional energy, I sometimes shy away from acting out of fear that I'll lose my freedom. I think many in my culture think and act this way, especially since many of us find ourselves single later in life and we simply haven't had to sacrifice much of our freedom to love others. What would you say about this idolization of freedom? Simply this. The world has proclaimed the reign of freedom, especially of late. But what do we see in this freedom of theirs? Nothing but slavery and self-destruction. Slavery. That's a really strong word. If the world's freedom is slavery, how would you define the world's freedom? The world says, you have desires and so satisfy them. For you have the same rights as the most rich and powerful. Don't be afraid of satisfying them. And even multiply your desires. That is the modern doctrine of the world. In that, they see freedom. There's no way that you see the ability to pursue one's desires as freedom? Because in American culture, basically, from the time we're conscious, we're told that the pursuit of one's desires, of what we want to be when we grow up, that is the basically definition of freedom. And we don't view that as slavery. Can you describe really how it is slavery? Well, what follows from this right of multiplication of desires? In the rich, isolation and spiritual suicide. In the poor, envy and murder. I ask you, is such a man free? What can become of him if he is in such bondage to the habit of satisfying the innumerable desires he has created for himself? He is isolated. And what concern has he with the rest of humanity? They have succeeded in accumulating a greater mass of objects, but the joy in the world has grown less. Wow, I think you make a great case that this freedom we value so much, it leads to isolation and alienation from others. I think this is common to human nature, but in the individualistic culture of the United States, perhaps it's worse? I don't know. It was true in Russia as well when I was alive. For Everyone who strives to keep his individuality as apart as possible wishes to secure the greatest possible fullness of life for himself. But all his efforts result not in fullness of life, but self-destruction. For instead of self-realization, he ends up at arriving at complete solitude. Everywhere in these days, men have ceased to understand that the true security is to be found in social solidarity. 
rather than an isolated individual effort. But this terrible individualism must inevitably have an end, and all will suddenly understand how unnaturally they are separated from one another. This terrible individualism must inevitably have an end. I really like that. I see a connection in that to our world today. Although this pandemic we've gone through has been terrible, I think it's woken many people up to how destructive isolation can be. I'm hoping that, as you said, this will be a catalyst in giving up our individual freedoms and in seeking to love others, we'll find the truest kind of freedom. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. I'd love to end our interview by talking scripture. Could you leave us with your life verse, with your favorite scripture? Of course, of course. It's the epitaph to the brothers Karamazov, and it's on my gravestone, John 12, 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Hmm. You, Fyodor Mihailovich, you've certainly lived out this verse in your life, and I know you've encouraged many like me to do the same. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. It's been such an honor. As it has for me. Thanks so much for listening to this very special episode of Hope Unyielding. If you like this episode, share it on Instagram or Facebook, or just pass it along to one of the literature nerds in your life. Thanks again for listening, and I hope to see you next time.